All right. Hello, writers. Well, hello, anybody who is listening to this. This is part four, actually is the finale of my interview with author and teacher uh, Theodore Goss. And uh, this is um, my favorite of the four sections of the interview for a whole host of reasons. You know, we, uh, we start off talking about the double lens of being an immigrant and uh, how for her, going back and forth from America to, to Hungary and how Hungary is a fairyland for her. And that she is, uh, like many of us, I think, a kind of uh, American changeling. So we went to that, to the politics, being a political, not being a political, how to avoid it, but she can't. So how do you deal with it in your writing? Uh, how specifically she does that. And then, you know, really the, the interview for me comes home when we start talking about the writer's journey or specifically Theodora gets really candid about her own, how you can't really write well unless you are learning about yourself or better yet, how to be yourself and be a little okay with, with failing, uh, failing a lot, but still trying because we're not always pretty on the inside. And that um, this maybe is another kind of monstrousness or monstrosity that we are forced to deal with for not taking on the role that society, family, pop culture, tradition uh, has had ready and waiting for you to put on since before you were born. And what do you do with that when it doesn't fit? Because you are still a writer. And if you truly do have the opportunity to do so, there's a duty that Theodora says that you have to be a better writer. And that can only come through, yeah, through doing the hard work of, again, learning how to be yourself. So, Everyone who's listening, uh, let me again say thank you to you for taking the time with Theodore Goss and myself. I always learn a lot. I hopefully you did and will from uh, from the rest of this interview. And please go out and buy Theodore Goss's new book, The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughters, and come to ReaderCon, where we'll launch uh, season two of our podcast called The Kaleidocast, which has a story from Theodore Goss. So... Without further ado, here is the final interview with Theodora. You know, it's funny, this thing about an outsider look at America. I mean, I always have this double vision of America. Uh -huh. um, I wrote about this recently in a story that I just submitted somewhere, and hopefully it'll be accepted. Who knows? I don't know if they'll like it or not. But it was, it's not even really a story. It's almost a kind of meditation on the concept of the alien. And I write about growing up, and being an alien, because I came to the United States when I was seven. I became a, um, a citizen when I was, I think, 16, 15, mm -hmm. 16, something like that, about 15. And and so being an actual alien, right, and talking about that as watching like movies about aliens, growing up in the 80s and seeing Star Trek and seeing Star Wars and reading science fiction and how those things come together. I try to go abroad at least once a year. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to go back to my other home, which is Hungary, at least once a year. Did you um, go back and forth when you were a child too? Okay. No, because when I was a child, it was the Cold right. War. Right. So actually, Hungary was fairyland in that it was sealed off and you couldn't get to it. It was Narnia. It was all of these places in portal fantasies that you can't get to except through some sort of magic that wasn't available to me at the time. I was not able to go back until I was 16 years old and uh, just finishing high school. Yeah. And that was the first time that I could go back to my own home, actually, and, and see my grandparents. And did it feel like home then, too? Did it, when you walked in for the first time, did it feel... It was all kind of a liminal experience or still on the edge going in like 
both worlds or oh yeah definitely a sense of being alien in both worlds because I was Hungarian in America mm -hmm. but I was American in Hungary because I didn't speak the language and I still don't speak I speak a little bit of Hungarian and I'm trying to learn but it's a long process but also Hungary at that time was not the way it is now so when I went there it was very very poor Budapest was beautiful because it's always beautiful but it was very sooty there were turbans and yugos on the road um, these Eastern European yeah. cars. <laughs> the airport was patrolled by Russian soldiers. And there was, you know, I was traveling with an American passport, which made it okay. Mm -hmm. But my mother didn't go because she had left the country illegally because there was no, there were very few ways to leave the country legally. Right. You weren't allowed to leave. So she had left on a visa that allowed her to visit her sister who was living outside the country and she hadn't gone back. So, if she had gone back, she could have been put in prison. So yeah, I always have this double perspective on America, which is that on the one hand, I'm from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I grew up watching the Brady Bunch. You know, <laughs> I get all the I get all the cultural references in a way that someone who genuinely grew up somewhere else mm -hmm. really wouldn't. So I'm native and not native. Yeah. And it's odd, even odder, because you know. You at least my, for me and my grandmother and my mom, they can tell me stories about Belize. Mm -hmm. um, Is that where your family's from? Yeah. And uh, I've, I've gone back once. Uh, mm -hmm. But for you, your, your mom can tell you the stories about Belize, about, sorry, about, about Hungary, yeah. but now you'll have, I guess, the fresher story when you go back and tell your, uh, well, tell your mom about more accurate yeah, that's stories true. Now, um, when you talk about them. Although she goes back now. I mean, oh, now, everything's, okay. now everything has changed. You know, the Berlin Wall fell, which is good. Um, I'm very anti-wall <laughs> because of this. All walls. Walls, bad. <laughs> right? Like, no building walls, guys. I have been there personally. Um, you lose family. You lose connections. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, often the people who actually, well, here, people who live along the wall, like, what are you guys talking about? This is a really silly idea. Yeah. Um, actually, it comes to another point. So I follow you on Twitter. So I see you do Twitter uh, tweet. You do tweet about political things. I do now. I tried not to for a while. But it just it invades. You know. Invades you just have space, to at this point. Space. It's like you've got to stand up for what you believe in. Because if you don't, what are you going to do? No. Someone else will be writing a story for you, but making decisions for you, so you have to be involved. So yeah. I, so I wonder. Uh, usually, I think writers, in some way, they're always writing to some, writing back to something. Yeah. Do you find yourself now wanting to tell stories that are a bit more specifically politically relevant about things that are happening right, right, right now? It's not so much what's happening right now. The novel, <laughs> the short version is, it is the story of five unusual girls: Mary Jekyll, Diana Hyde. Justine Frankenstein, Catherine Moreau, and Beatrice Rappuccini in late 19th century London. And what I'm doing there is, I mean, I can't help being influenced by all the things that are happening, all the things that I'm reading. And I read all these books about monsters. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they focus on male monsters. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they focus on female monsters. And I thought, you know what, I want, I want to tell the female monster story from the inside, which is I think something a lot of people, something most people haven't done, 
and I have my characters. Actually, my characters discuss politics. It's the character. It's the politics of the 19th century, late 19th century. But it's very much relevant to what's happening today. I never set out going. I'm going to make a political point, and I never set out talking about. Although actually, I did in the most recent story. I talked about how all of a sudden, um, I talked about Brexit. In fact. I mentioned Brexit and how all of a sudden it feels like history is moving backwards and we're going to be, you know, we're, we're just like moving back into the past. Yeah. And we've somehow ended up in the wrong timeline because it's involving science fiction or that we'll end up in a William Gibson story yeah. I talk about. Oh, just note again, Theodore Goss does write other things other than fantasy. Uh, I, well, I've written, I've written science fiction-y things. People sometimes, people believe they're science fiction. They're sort of, I don't know what I write. The stuff I write is is sort of all over the place. I don't know, um, it, it, we've had this conversation again and again at Rito Time every time. What is science fiction? What is fantasy? Where's the line? To be honest, sometimes it doesn't matter that much as long as what you're saying, you know, fits certain tropes, you know, plays with those ideas. I will say that it doesn't matter to me. I personally don't care how you categorize my stories. I, <laughs> people ask, you know, why did you sell this particular story to this particular magazine? And I say, they offered me money. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm very project driven. So um, if I have, if someone asks me for something and I have an idea that'll work mm -hmm. and I'm excited by it, then I'm very happy to do that. Um, otherwise, I have tons of ideas. I have way more ideas than I have time to write, sure. which is a pain in the butt. So I, I tend to have these ideas. I have this idea that I really want to write, and I don't know if anyone would publish it, but I'm sure somebody would. Um, and I've had it forever, but it's uh, a future society post-apocalypse in which you have this small group of people who have survived, and uh, they have the one book that survived with them which is Jane Austen's Emma. And it is this entire society that is built on having this sacred book that is Emma by Jane Austen. Who's allowed to read it? That's a good question. But it's like, is that science fiction? I don't know. Is that fantasy? Is that, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's an idea. And what's exciting to me is being able to write about weird stuff. And even when I write something that is like, a fairy tale. What I'm doing is just taking what I think is interesting and twisting it and doing things with it. I don't know. I just get ideas to do stuff and then hopefully they sell somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's important that you're already selling, so it's easier to kind of say, I, I want to do this now. You're, you're, you already have at least three or four projects already kind of planned out, don't you? Right now, right now, I have this story I need to finish, which is my Alice story. I'm mm -hmm. going to try to finish that this week because that needs to go off. I have um, a novel, which is the second Mad Scientists mm -hmm. girls. They're, they're actually alchemists girls now. But um, the, the second in this series coming out from Saga Press, which I really need to finish. And it's going a lot more slowly. I wish it were going fast. I also, also write first drafts by hand usually. Yep which takes time, but it means that by the second draft, I've got a pretty solid draft. So for me, it actually speeds up the process. Okay. Because as soon as I type it into the computer, what I have is already either a second or a third draft, which helps, usually a second draft. So I've got the story, the novel. I just delivered a poem to Uncanny Magazine. Yeah, they asked me for a poem, so I, 
I uh, actually had one that I'd started and didn't know how to finish. Mm -hmm. And I sat down one day and I said, no, I've got to finish this. So I finished that poem and it's long and I think it's kind of fun. So hopefully people like it. I have a story story coming out in tour.com that's going to be called Come See the Living Dryad. And that is not fantasy. It's actually kind of a murder mystery. Okay. Yeah. I'm not even sure it's that's science first. fiction. Actually, I'm not sure there's anything fantastical about it. Don't tell Tor.com that. Um, <laughs> Should I edit I think that? It's a, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, it refers to fantasy. Gotcha. It like talks about fantasy. Um, but in terms of projects, the big one is this novel. Mm -hmm. um, I am supposed to be, um, and we still need final approval for this, but assuming we get it, I will be writing an academic book on Ursula Le Guin. Right, start, we talk, start yeah, talking about Yeah, which is going to be like a, a multi-year project with research. With That's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. Is I really love that. Is that going to be something that you do by yourself, or do you have like some of your students as research um, assistants? No, I would not use students as research assistants, um, not undergraduates. Uh, for something like that, if I had a research assistant, it would be a graduate student. Mm -hmm. For a book like this, which is part of a series, I would probably do the research just myself. So yeah, so <laughs> that's that's going to be kind of a big project, but also a lot of fun because um, Ursula Le Guin is absolutely foundational to my own writing. And actually, there is a story of hers that influenced Samaria, and I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but it's these three people who go to a planet, and um, they don't understand what's going on on the planet, and um, they go to this planet, and everything they're seeing on this planet among the native population is so cliche. They're like, what is going on here? And they finally figured out, figure out that what happens is that this planet is created in the mind of a young boy on Earth. Mm -hmm. it's, kind of, it's kind of funny, almost like a send up of science fiction of that particular era, right? But that the, the older people who, have, who he's no longer interested in have started creating their own culture. But it's, it's, again, it's this idea of um, the mind and, and human beings, how the mind creates. That's pretty cool. I think culture. it's, just, it's the so, stretching of reality. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I have that. Eventually, hopefully, there'll be a third book in this series. Um, it should be three books total, but we'll see how the first one does first. And then there are other things and I want to do. Yeah, you'll find other things. Yeah. We, you kind of touched on this before. We were talking about being Hungarian and being, you know, of both worlds. Yeah. Um, you've also talked before about, on your, on your blog, I read your blog, so uh, you're very honest about things that I think a lot of people kind of need to hear about, like, like depression. Uh, ah, yeah. Yeah, and um, the idea of being a caretaker. Uh, I'm sure, at least my from, at least from my family, a Belizean family, even mother, that's what you do. My mother took care of my grandmother for 18 years during her stroke, so you, that's a burden that you take on. How do you take off that burden, you know, coming here? And does, is that something that's still, I haven't, I haven't caught that as much in your writing, mm -hmm. um, but do you still deal with that as, as a writer, or is it something you kind of deal with separately? That's a really interesting question. So the, the blog was about how... Uh, how do I explain it? Well, in my own life, I was the older sister, mm -hmm. and my mother was a single mom. So I was the one who took care of my brother. After a certain age, I would come home. He came home from school. I'd watch over him. You know, I was that kid. Mm -hmm. And as I grew up, actually, it took a really long time for me to realize that all of my life, I had fit into this caretaking role. I was a lawyer first. 
and I took care of my clients. Um, even in college, I was a camp counselor and I had kids to take care of. And then I became a teacher. And so I was essentially taking care of my students. Mm -hmm. um, and that for me, because of the way that I'd grown up, because of the way I'd been acculturated as a woman, um, and certainly coming out of Eastern Europe, there was a sense that if I was not doing that, like what was I doing with my life? This was the point, it was to take care of people. And for me to say, I'm not gonna take care of people right now because I am writing, which is something that felt that I had been taught was selfish, right? About the self. Um, that was a really big deal. And I had to learn two things. One was that you're a really lousy caretaker unless you take care of yourself first, mm -hmm. because then you get angry. At least I get angry. I'm like, why am I spending all my time on everybody else and not on my own Did stuff? Did you realize you were angry, or is this something that kind of... I realized I was angry. Okay. Yeah, I realized that it made me angry, um, that all of my energy was going out to so many other people. Because, I mean, it, in, I, let me just say, I adore my students. My students are amazing. I love being a teacher, but um, some semesters I have 60 students. I am taking care of 60 people. Um, plus, I have a daughter, right, mm -hmm. who is my first priority always, um, who, who at the moment is at camp, which is why I'm spending so much time having a wonderful time, which is why I'm spending so much time writing. Otherwise, I'd be spending a lot more time with her. Um, but I think it does, it makes you angry. And actually that was a really good realization because women are taught not to feel anger. So often they channel it into other things and mm -hmm. they think, oh, I'm sad or I'm depressed or I'm, and depression is a real thing in and of itself. But often you think I'm X and you don't realize that what it is, I'm anxious and you don't realize that actually you're just really angry, right? Um, Where do you put it? you be angry. <laughs> I think you just sit there and you say, I'm angry. I mean, the, the thing about writing is it's really hard to write well without being really honest with yourself about who you are and what you think. <laughs> writing is, I've got to write about this. I have to write a blog post about this. I have a note in my little note, idea notebook about this. Um, the writer's journey, mm -hmm. like writing, participating in any of the arts, more than anything else is a process of self-discovery. And yes, you're doing it for other people, you're creating things for other people, but you cannot do it well unless you are constantly learning about yourself. Um, and that means that as a writer, if you really do it and you're really trying to do it well, and I'm trying to do it well, I fail a lot, but I'm trying, um, you, learn more and more about yourself and you go deeper and deeper into yourself um that's scary it is scary you learn things that are not very pretty right because um we're not that pretty on the inside i mean speak for yourself well you of course <laughs> well. are beautiful on the inside <laughs> me not so much but you know i get angry and i get jealous and there are times when i am scared of the stupidest things you know, all of this stuff that is this the tangled ball of who we are. Um, writing, you know, confronts you with a tangled ball. <laughs> 
because everything that you're writing is coming from you. Mm-hmm. Where did we start with this? Oh, well, we started just talking about being a caretaker. What did you oh, yeah, yeah, caretaker. And, and how, does, um, how does that go towards towards writing or just either getting in the way of your writing if you're not dealing with it or or what pieces do you kind of, because basically you're exposing a piece of yourself, even if it's not autobiographical, put it to yourself. Yeah, you are always. And you're always saying, hi, here I am, reject me. Give me a one-star review. Mm. So you've got to, there are things that we often think are weaknesses that you have to use and you can have to turn them into strengths. Like, you've got to be selfish. You've got to say, look, this is my time to write and this is actually really important. Um, there's, there's a um, duty you have to, and I think if this is the kind of person you are, and I'm not saying everyone is this kind of person, but there are people in the world that say, I know what I was made for, right? I envy those people. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew when I was 12 that I was a writer. I knew super young. But if you have that idea, and I think of it like women who know that, they're go- that they feel a religious call and they're gonna be nuns right? Like that's an extreme version of it. But there are people who know this is what I'm meant to become. And if you have that, and if you don't follow it, you're just, yeah. it's more, like you're more, not being, anger. it's more anger, um, more fear. And it's like, you're not doing your duty to whatever it was that made you that thing that said you are created for the purpose of X. Mm-hmm. And if you feel that, and not everyone does, but if you are the person who goes, I am meant to be an artist, or I am meant to be a dancer. That's almost like a different kind of irresponsibility. I think you have to follow that. I think otherwise, and, and you'll feel it, I think, you know? Yeah. It's almost like the universe is disappointed in you. <laughs> so, an anger. I mean, I don't, I don't think you get anywhere by trying to hide that you're angry, right? All of these negative emotions, what you've got to do is just sort of wave your arms and say, I'm angry, I'm not proud of it, well, but here I am. I wonder how much, how much stress is, is passed on through the generations because those, those people thought, you know, the only thing I can do is support my family. This is all I can do. I might be an artist. I might be a ballerina. I might just be really good at, at, at I don't know, finger puppets. Yeah. But I can't do it because I have to be this, this, this thing. And maybe legitimately they did have to at some point, but mm-hmm. not have any kind of outlet. It's, well, that's a little sad. It's more than sad. It is. And you end up making, and some people don't have choices. You end up making choices. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we look at the canon and we're like, how come it's, you know, mostly men? How come it's almost all people who had sources of wealth other mm-hmm. than working? Why is it that those were the people who created art? Or people who had rich patrons? It's, you know, I think we all have the capacity to create art, all of us in different ways only certain people get the opportunity and in the past a lot fewer people had the opportunity had the opportunity and were told that this is okay this is a, yeah a good thing yeah the number of women who were literally told not to write i mean you find these old stories and they're real stories it's like we have this you know it's not like we just have this idea that this happened it's you find narratives of women who were told that really they should not write, that it would be bad for them, they were neglecting their duties to their families, and often they, you know, write, but it's only when they're older, and 
you know, the duties to the families. Of, mm-hmm. I, I feel this obligation to write about that stuff. So that's going back to this idea of politics. I mean, if I'm, if I'm responding to current politics, it's usually on Twitter. Um, but in stories, it's almost like I'm writing about, um, I'm writing about systems and ways of thinking and I'm writing stories of others in various ways. And I don't try to be overtly political because I think that actually destroys stories. I think it makes stories unbalanced hmm. and not much fun if they're just political stories. George Orwell was about as good at it as you know anybody can be in 1984 it's like about as good as you can get doing that but yeah but I I guess I try to talk about the things that concern me I try to make sure that without being political or overtly political I try to make sure that when I'm writing a story it has sort of a central point a central thing that's being said about something well kind of the end on that point. I was gonna, I'm going to quote you. I think, I'm, I think you're either quoting Stephen Colbert or something like it. All right, oh. All right, well, okay, here's the quote. The problem, of, um, this is talking about reality. The problem, of course, is that realism isn't truth, it's truthy, which is... Where did he say that? That's great. Uh, well, that he, sounds exactly like him, too. Yeah, well, uh, you said that, but he, he, said, he said it years ago on the Colbert show. Like he uh-huh. coined, actually, if, I think if you Google it, he coined the term truthiness. Um, I think it's, just, it's a great aesthetic idea, but but I feel like what you're doing in your stories, fairy tale, gothic, whatever, is again stretching reality. It still feels solid. It doesn't feel like you are in a second world. It feels like this. Only now here, it's very natural to have a goat with a child's head in the basement. Oh yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> well, for all of them, but that but that one. Even there's <laughs> there's even the fairy tale. I forget with the I forget the name of it. Where the women, uh, they marry the bears. And oh party, yeah, and they make out with the bears, and they have bear children. That's a hilarious story. Someone actually asked me, like, "What is it with you and bears?" <laughs> like, I don't know. They're all over fairy tales, right? And there's a reason they're all over fairy tales, which is that they were the main predator in Europe at the time. That'll do you it. know, that's if you want to go over to the wild, what do you do? You marry a bear, or you become a bear. Otherwise, you become bear food. Yeah, that too. The um, quotation is really funny because the story that I most wrote most recently, this one that I told you about, about th- that's sort of it's sort of memoir, but with references to science fiction. Mm-hmm. I actually and I read it at ReaderCon out loud to an audience of people, and um, it ends with something like I'm trying to quote myself here, but it's something like people sometimes ask me why I write science fiction. I answer because I'm a realist. Well done. <laughs> There you go. Well, that has been our interview with uh, Theodore Goss. Thank you very much for your time and your energy and your writing and just for being you. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> and hold on. We figure out how to turn all this stuff off. <laughs>